Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is supported by our friends at Birkenstock Australia. Birkenstock products are predominantly manufactured in Germany with a focus on quality, comfort and classic styles. Birkenstock's footbeds are made from sustainable materials, including cork, jute and natural latex. Given their durability, Birkenstock products are sustainable by nature. Birkenstock, tradition since 1774. Hey there, thanks for joining us on the Dumbo Feather podcast. I've grabbed one from the vault to share with you this episode. It's an interview we did back in 2017 with Tim Winton, one of Australia's most prolific writers. At this time, Tim was on a publicity tour for his collection of non-fiction essays titled The Boy Behind the Curtain, which, among many things, explores class as it relates to Tim's varied life experiences, from growing up in suburban West Australia to today being an internationally lauded author. In this chat with Dumbo Feather interviewer Mike Bartlett, He shares some of his insights into Australia's changing socioeconomic landscape and how he's confronted snobbery to open himself up to many different kinds of perspectives and ways of living. Your appreciation of mystery, do you think that comes from your religious upbringing? I really like the way that you wrote about the Church of Christ. I didn't know that much about that particular sect. Is there really a tank on the stage? Just a big bath. It It was set into the stage, yeah. And down south, that corrugated iron tank. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it looked like an open water tank. tank. This sort of thing that people now turn into garden beds in the inner city. Right, know? okay. Mm. What I liked about it was you actually wrote about it very warmly. Usually those sort of stories of childhood upbringings and just, you know, circumstances are stories of repression or you know, suffering, but you write about it with affection and a kind of nostalgia. Yeah, I think so. And the funny thing is that it was a religious tradition that wasn't all that invested in mystery. I think having grown up in a religious tradition which traded on certainty was excellent training in a way journeying to adulthood with a, an increasing appreciation of mystery and an interest. I sometimes wonder, you know, postmodern Australia is very secure in a way that I approve of in terms mm-hmm. of its public space. Mm-hmm. Historically, Australia has been traditionally quite irreligious, quite mm. sceptical, quite pragmatic. There's nothing like coming from rock bottom. <laughs> to know what there is to aspire to. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah. Unless you know what it looks like when the cupboard's bare, you don't know how lucky you are when the cupboard's full. So, yeah, I am interested in mystery. I think that having come from a religious tradition that didn't abide uncertainty, where doubt was something to fear, it was interesting coming into adulthood and realising how much there was to know and knowledge was about understanding how little you knew. Some of that's also about trying to retain some of the gifts, skills of childhood, 
awe, wonder, a proper sense of bewilderment. There's that strange thing that we get trained to give up things for something better. When you're a kid, you give up a lot, and I don't think they necessarily replace it with anything better. What sort of things are you talking about? Oh, those things. Capacity, tolerance, and a patience for um, one. When you don't have agency, you do submit to the idea that, okay, I don't know everything, but you get sold this idea that soon you will. Right. Of course you don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you can see it with children as they change and as you're completely benign influence over them. Why? You know, as they get older, yeah. they become suspicious, they become sceptical, they become harder to inspire in some ways. Mm. They become resistant. They're almost as though they see the certain gifts receding, whereas the family dog might still have it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, being able to read the room being one thing. Sometimes children are more empathetic at a certain age than they are later. Study has said children at a very young age want to see people help. They don't even necessarily feel the need to help themselves to mm. benefit from this altruism, but they just want everyone to be okay. A child will do something useless without apology. Lie on the floor with a crayon, and in case of my children, draw big pictures on the back of TypeScript of Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. Right. <laughs> I can't believe they did that. No, really. <laughs> That'd be a collector's item now. It'd be a collector's item because they'd ruin it. Exactly. But, and again, that comes back to my thing about art and awe. Art's useless, requires no excuse for being useless. So a child doesn't need to justify why she or he's writing that picture or drawing the lines in the sand or skipping or building some um, fangled thing up a tree. That's what this sort of stuff we, we give up at our, at our peril. Okay. So on an entire culture like ours, for instance, traditional mainstream Australia, some of our politicians still conceive of it as a time before halal or as a time before garlic. What they're harking back to is some pure notion of this grand Australia where it was great and no one sad. Do you know what I mean? That's another thing that we give up either individually or we learn to let go. is certain innocent, joyful things that add richness to our life, like just singing as a matter of course. Yeah. And the way that men in some cultures get to hold hands when they're not in any kind of erotic or even familial relationship. Right. They're friends. They walk down the street holding hands. We've been robbed of that. Lots of us have slowly inched back a little bit of ground by kissing our sons and our fathers and even our friends in public, goodbye and hello. Once you brought the hug in, you know, it was just all bets were off, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's great. But, you know, when I, went, when I lived in Ireland, I just could not believe how impoverished Australians had allowed themselves to become okay. inside two centuries. Mm. Whereas you know that the people who came in chains on the boats would sing to each other mm. and they would sing as a matter of course, just as the people whose land they were supplanting, I was saying as a matter of course. And yet somehow by the time it got to 1960s suburban Perth, you only sang the team song if you won the game. And in special circumstances, provided you were completely pissed, you yeah. might sing a song whose lyrics currently elude you. And that just felt like, how is it? We've evolved so far and thrown so much luggage out. And you're not singing. That yeah. Of. And just singing as a matter of course, when someone starts it up and someone will kick in. Someone will sing on the bus and right. and brighten everybody's day. If someone does that now, you see everyone move to the other end of the yeah, bus. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They'd be invading my space, so that's an offence against my person. There'd be a trigger warning for singing. You know? 
That's right. Yes. You're making people uncomfortable. And actually, there's a literal example of that. A few weeks ago, where I surfed, there's a brass hut on the beach that some surfers built just to get out of the sun. And there's all these Australian blokes who go down and surf every day and they sit around and talk. Mm-hmm. And then one day, this European backpacker shows up. He was there for days coming and going from the beach. And when he wasn't surfing, he'd spend his day sanding this little guitar. And when he wasn't sanding it, he'd be playing it and he'd just start singing. And it was like being in that film, Something About Mary, where this guy in the tree right. singing a song. And he was making people really uncomfortable. Okay. And it wasn't because he was foreign, and it wasn't anything that he was singing. It was just the fact that his homies weren't there, shall we say. Right. He was just singing happily and quite well, and playing yeah. quite well on his own. You could just feel the voice. The subtext being, what's this joker's caper? What's going on? And it's just there was a kind of a flamboyance and cultural confidence about that. Whereas if it had been sanctified by... He was doing it for money, okay. we'd understand, right. or if he'd had a grant for it, or we knew who he was, yeah, yeah. if he was known well enough in the community to be a fully licensed and paid up eccentric, uh, then maybe that's a slim pass. But we're suspicious about flamboyance. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. just that confidence, just that sort of, in an Australian context, he was making himself very vulnerable. He wasn't cross-dressed or anything, but he was just a, a far too good-looking young man in a pair of board shorts, long hair and tats and whatever, strumming away. And part of me is thinking, what's your problem? And the other part of me is thinking, go team. We are so trained as Australians to say be suspicious of flamboyance, but also we're suspicious of confidence. Yeah, I mean, who does this guy think he is? Neil Young? You know, but who does Neil Young think he is? <laughs> It's true with our attitude to language now. People are suspicious of people who can use language well. But language is inherently dishonest. Yeah, that's right. You know, you've got to watch English television in the last 20 years to know how everyone's sucking up to the mockney. Yeah. It's incredible. You can tell these people have got really posh accents mm. in real life, but they've obviously studied their glottal stock. Right. You know, yeah. Just, <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I think it's a suspicion of eloquence, suspicion of elaboration. In the old days in Australia, that was mainly yeah. to do with colonial anxiety. Now I wonder if it isn't a little to do with where does this fit into the market? What do you want? How do I value this? Is this crap or not? Is this an outrage or not? Is this public indecency or not? The way that we've been taught to calibrate these things is, is it valuable and there's something about power and money and status. Yeah, so everything's judged by whether it's going to make money. I suppose that invites a certain kind of mediocrity because people are marketing. They look to what's worked before. They look at the precedent. Yeah. Something's completely new. Or Everyone wants to be the first person to do something second time. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. You talk about class in the book, which is still considered a bit of a dirty word in Australia, but I think it's a really interesting thing to talk about. You talk about how your character, your worthiness is inherently linked to your financial standing. There are people who bother and people who can't be bothered. Yeah, that's now the cultural assumption. And, of course, then it was amplified by the political language of lifters and leaners. And having sentiments like that spouted from the biggest leaners in the country (laughs) was just the icing on the cake, in a way. I think when Australia was more class conscious, life wasn't better, but it was a little more honest. And I think there's a sort of dishonesty in not acknowledging that I submitted ourselves to the idea that we're no longer living in a society, we're living in an economy, and that we've surrendered much more of our autonomy than we ever imagined we could to corporations. We just haven't got the balls to own up to that. Neither have we got the courage to own up to the fact that it's made more people poorer and fewer people richer. 
Well, that's their promise, isn't it? That we're eventually going to end up as one of the rich people. And the aspiration. So even if you're very poor, you vote for yeah. the tax cuts for the rich because that's going to be you next week. Yeah, and I think this sort of post-80s experiment, it's an uncontrolled experiment, shall we call it, has been running long enough for us to see pretty plainly that it's not really the success that it was made out to be. It's not working. The trickle-down thing turns out to have been a furphy. The only thing that trickles down is the trouble. And even if the trouble trickles down, there's money in trouble. When you turn a society into an economy and you enhance the conditions for poverty and despair and distress, you enlarge the world of crime and disorder, mm-hmm. who would have thought there's money in locking people up? Absolutely. And we've seen that domestically, we've seen that in our borders. There's money in putting children behind barbed wire, there's money putting children in restraints and spithoods on shore who are our citizens. Mm. And there's money locking up guys who've fiddled their tax as long as they're not really rich guys, as long as they're not corporations, not banks. Right. Well, listen to me, I sound like an old lady. <laughs> but, you know, that's interesting. Anything that trickles down, mm. it's trouble. And yet that works well in this heartless, inhumane model because there's profit to be made in incarceration. If we are talking about class, a number of times PCC you talk about having transcended your class, really. I mean, come from a working class background, you know, middle class. The younger Tim that we glimpse in some of these pictures, how do you think he would feel about Tim Winton, living treasure, true figure? Yeah, I think my middle-aged self would be incomprehensible to my boyhood self, but for so many reasons. As I say in the class essay, when I was a boy, I didn't know anybody like me. Even a less well-known or less well-dressed <laughs> version of me. People who made money from abstract things didn't exist in my world, for one right. thing. People who used $10 words didn't exist in my world, drove certain cars, you know, that sort of thing. Just the fact that, you know, when I won the Vogel Prize at 21, I'd never been in a hotel or a taxi or an aeroplane. So I think it's a level of separation that's some of it's geographical, some of it's about finance and class. The rest of it's just about age and experience, though, is it? Oh, well, I guess so. Uh, yes. But the thing is, I wanted to be a writer since I was 10. Yeah. I got to be, and I got to be a writer early. I think I started thinking that I'd got more or less what I wanted out of my life in my early 20s. I didn't set my bar very high in terms of <laughs> satisfaction, but if you want to be a writer and I was a wife, and you get to be a writer in your 20s, and by the end of my 20s, I published more books than most moderately successful people get to publish in a lifetime. So in that sense, I could say that what would the boyhood self make of the middle-aged man? You think, well, there's that writer thing, but life was more complex. And writing life and writing as a form of work and then writing as a communal, cultural kind of thing was stranger than I could ever have imagined, took me to places I couldn't have foreseen. Having come from this background where, uh, as you say, no one, you'd never met a writer or you didn't know people that used $10 words, and suddenly being thrust into this literary scene in yeah. this middle-class environment, mm-hmm. have you acclimatised to that? Yeah, I think it took a long time. I was uncomfortable. If you come from a working-class background and you surpass, you know, you cross the boundaries, it's not uncommon for people to feel confusions of loyalties and odd survival guilt and all that sort of stuff. So it took me a while to integrate all of that and maybe it's not a completely successful experiment in some senses but I feel reasonably comfortable about it and that's partly culturally some of that stuff I didn't leave behind. I've carried 
some of those values with me, certainly some of those habits of being and of mind with me. I can't tell if it's by choice or if it's subconsciously. I've mostly, except for a few years, lived near or around people who are familiar to me in terms of class. But I don't belong in the working class anymore. And my commitment to the upper middle class, because I'm too posh, obviously, now. For the mere middle class. Right, yeah. Put it this way, my conviction is tepid, you know. <laughs> So I'm neither one or the other. And I'm not sentimental about the working class stuff. There's lots of things about working class culture I talk about in the essay, that kind of reflexive tribalism. I don't miss that at all. I don't like it. And I guess I don't like monocultures that much, which is why I was never really comfortable living in the inner city for the years I did for the sake of the kids' education. Right, um, around for you. Yeah, lovely people, lovely places, but everyone in furious agreement. And it's no different to really being stuck in a working-class suburb where you can't get in a conversation with anybody that's not about football or the glories of the hop. Do you think that's necessary for an artist really to be neither one nor the other, to be out of your own? I don't know if it's necessary, but I think it's useful to be a bit deracinated. I don't even like that word because it sounds a bit eugenic, doesn't it? Yeah, I suppose yeah. so, yeah. Well, maybe it's just a nice word for promiscuous. And perhaps the best way to phrase it, it's useful not to settle for life in an enclave. Again, something I learned at a young age. Yeah. So I resist the enclave of the downside of the glories of the inner city, which downside to being smugness and the endlessly reinforcing circle of satisfaction. I'm all right, you're all right, et cetera, and also it's not all right. And you get that wherever you go. Every form of culture is like that. So mm. if you're unconvinced by each of those, you're a bit eclectic about what you take from them, then I think that helps. I think art that comes from an enclave isn't any better than thinking that comes from an enclave. Mm. And if you've got foot in more than one camp, you speak more than one language, even if it's just English. Sure. But what it means is that you have to find some level of comfort in every neighbourhood as a way of living your life. Mm-hmm. But we're talking the art stuff. I mean, that applies as well. There's no way you feel that you won't go or shouldn't go or there's no one who's not interesting. So it's an odd thing. That's why I can live in and I've lived in small redneck communities quite happily. And it's an odd thing to be someone who lives out of their head and uses $10 words and reads books that you have to import, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And get some wine sent up on the road train and I'm spending my time with people who are tradespeople. It seems to work okay for me. So I'll paddle out in the water and spend time talking with people who come from totally different background to me. And I don't get 100% satisfaction from every encounter. Then I realise I don't get that anywhere, you know. Yeah, I find people interesting. And that's one thing I did learn in Europe. I went through a period of snottiness with sport in my 20s. We had a gutful of the whole thing because it was just so dominant in the culture. Yeah. I came back, I remember the very first morning, it was a Sunday morning, Shenton Park, because mother-in-law was in the Shenton Park, we were back there for the first night. I got up early because the whole sleep pattern was out of order. Dawn's crack, I'm out there, and I just go for a walk, and there's a milk bar, and I go in there, and plastic fly strips, the whole yeah. thing, and there's a copy of the Sunday Times. Not necessarily my first choice of newspaper, but it's all sport. And there's this bloke behind the counter, I think he was a great guy, I don't know. And I stepped back into a very pleasurable world where I injected myself back into this thing. I think it was when the Eagles had first started up as a football team. I must have followed them in a sort of half-hearted way for a while. Yep. And I got to talk about football with this guy. I was just in a sort of nothing, how about those bloody blah, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. And then he yakety yak. I realised for two years I hadn't been inside any culture. I'd been travelling for two years and right. on the outside trying to accommodate and find my way in. And I just realised that there were simple things that you needn't allow them to get to a certain toxic level of overkill and disgust. Right. But that really did give you some connection with people in a way of how's your day, what about this? Just some little level of commonality with people who weren't in your narrow rut. And it's almost as though I think it's too easy to submit to the idea, I'm this kind of person, I hoe this furrow and that's it. 
Right. And there might be someone right there, they're in their trench. And just a little point of connection. Just a tiny thing. And for me, it was a little bit of a revelation, just walking into a milk bar, picking up a newspaper in my own language, if you don't mind, and having a very mundane yak with a guy. I was using my own language on seven different levels that I hadn't been able to use for a couple of years. Right. In that sense, I realised that I had to recalibrate a little bit and actually a little bit like going away from home and then appreciating your home for its absence. I think I'd probably spent too many years in my 20s feeling like I was too good for certain things. Right. I had a feeling. I was given Cloud Street a couple of years before I first went overseas and I didn't read it mm. because it was set in Perth. Mm. I was just desperate to escape Perth. Mm. And then, and also, someone said you should read this. Yes, so I should read you know, it. And then I took it with me to Europe when I first around Europe and just devoured it. And it just suddenly I wanted to make that connection again. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's truly one of my favourite books just because I had this intense connection with it because it was my little conduit back yeah. to home. No, it's an interesting. Well, I think what I realised was that my liberal left wing education had made me a snob. Right. That's <laughs> the simple. That's yeah. the simple truth of it. And everywhere I go, I see people whose progressive education has inadvertently narrowed some parts of them, um, made them into Puritans, and people anxious about linguistic hygiene, and where people are policing one another. And it's almost as though the younger they are and the more proximate they are to their tertiary education, the more puritanical and punitive their instincts are, all for good reasons. Mm. But the fruits of that not always being very useful or even particularly humane. No, I guess because you're seeing intellectuals, you're seeing very intelligent people, progressive people, cutting themselves off from the mainstream. That's right. Or just turning into finger-wagging wowzers on sort of some kind of secular, liberal, progressive version of the Iranian morality police. You know, ordinary around the street telling people what they can wear and what they can't wear. It was almost like a civil, linguistic, semiotic version of that. Kind of hilarious, really. It was a kind of liberating moment to realise that I'd somehow inadvertently cut myself off and born into a kind of a snobbery. And so I became a little bit more consciously omnivorous for a while. Then I stopped being conscious, it became instinctive. And then I realised my life was richer as a result. And I had wider group of friends. And I had never really thought about it until we're talking about it in this way, because... I wonder if it affected the work. Because mm. I, I keep getting this question, I've had it all week. Why do you think people read your books and not other people's books? Why do people read your books? Why do so many people read your books? Oh, okay. So how come you're popular? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I keep thinking, well, there's probably an industrial reason for that. But what is it about the work? I don't know. I'm not necessarily that it's easier to read than other people's. I think your work has a humane quality. And I think that it's omnivorousness that you're yeah. talking about comes through. Your last book, Airy, that you had this character who moves between these different social levels, different mm. classes, and they each feel equally true and recognisable. Yeah, it's odd. I think if I was writing in the full spirit of my education, we'd be less open in the same way that if I was more proximal to my fundamentalism, it'd be a little less open too. Sure. Spish up. You said you're not very sentimental about your working class background. Are there things that you are sentimental about, though? I mean, for example, your working space. You've worked in the same little fibre shed for a long time now. Yeah, well, it's gone, man. Oh, has it? Yeah. Now I'm living a bit more seasonally on Central West in summer and the rest of the year I'm in the north, I'm up in the desert edge. I'm living in a bigger house, but basically it's a shed with benefits because <laughs> I'm living in a cyclone. Okay. Everyone's living in steel sheds and concrete floors. When the house gets built, the steel comes on one truck and the bolts come on another. I am sentimental about certain objects. I'm probably sentimental about houses. For instance, there's only one house that I ever lived in as a child that's still standing. Right. And everything else gets bowled over. Okay, yeah. And that's the house in Albany. Yeah. And where I was teenager for three years. So it's probably the least inhabited house in terms of connection, but 
Do you, um, have you been back to visit it? I was there a few weeks ago. I took Stephen Rowe from the Australian. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that literally was the house where I stood behind the window. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably why I took him, but <laughs> every time I go to Albany, I drive by. It's really odd in a culture like ours. It's it's so full of self-disgust that it, it, it has to erase itself every generation. Right. So, yeah, I can be a bit sentimental about houses and objects. I might not have the fibro shed that I wrote all those books in, but I've got the desk. Oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> One of the desks that I use is an old desk that I think we got for 25 bucks. Why is that? Why do you have the sentimental uh, attachment to physics Physical objects, because yeah. their history manifests, they're the past manifests. The last thing I'll just quickly, sure. quickly ask, as we started with this, two non-fiction books in a row, is fiction becoming harder to write as you get older, or is it something? Oh, everything's harder to write. Everything's yeah, harder? Yeah. Okay. Um, the two non-fiction things being in a row is just an accident, well, partly, actually. Island Home, I originally thought was an essay that would sit in a collection and okay. just got out of hand. <laughs> so, so that's a kind of quite a literal thing, and it's mm-hmm. just timing and happenstance. It's not ideal in one sense to have two non-fiction things out. If you have an industrial coach, they'd right. say, no, no, not a good idea, Timmy, we'll go and do this, to try it this way. You know, <laughs> it's the way it works. You know. At the same time, there does seem to be a vogue for memoir at the moment. It's almost as if we only want to hear true stories. The festival of oversharing, right? Well, maybe. Maybe it's that. <laughs> I also wondered if it was to do with identity politics, that unless you're writing about your lived experience, then to be treated with suspicion. Yeah, well, spare me that. The, the order in which you publish things doesn't always reflect the order in which things are happening. Sure. So no, I'm still a fiction writer. I'm not a non-fiction writer. It's harder to write non-fiction. Is that right? Oh, yeah, quite a bit harder. Why is that? What's... Well, because your responsibilities go beyond the work. And your role is to write responsibility is to the work itself. It has structural integrity. You know, right. That it works in and of itself and that it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Non-fiction, you have responsibilities to the real people in the real world that you're writing about. You can read the full interview between Tim and Mike in issue 51 of Dumbo Feather magazine or over on our website, dumbofeather.com. Stay tuned for more conversations with extraordinary people on the Dumbo Feather podcast.